Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 120. We'll begin with a brief summary of Ezekiel chapters 1 through 3 and follow with some thoughts about the sinfulness of omission. We've reached the final of the three major prophetic books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Of these three, there was a big question mark attached to Ezekiel because there were sages in the Talmud that sought to suppress the book because of its content. The Babylonian Talmud, Tractate Chagiga 13a and b, states, quote, Rav Yehuda said, Indeed, that man is remembered for good, and Hananiah ben Chizkiah was his name. Were it not for him, the book of Ezekiel would have been suppressed. And why did the sages wish to suppress it? Because, quote, its words contradicted the words of Torah. We will see in chapters 40 through 48 that Yechezkel dropped some bars that openly contradict Torah teachings. Chagiga continues, quote, Why did he, that's Hananiah ben Chizkiah, why did he do this? They brought up to him 300 barrels of oil for food and light, and, quote, he sat in an upper chamber and expounded it. That is, he expounded the book of Ezekiel, so its teachings were reconciled with those of the Torah to the satisfaction of the rabbis. But that's not the only reason why the sages wanted to suppress the book. Chagiga continues, quote, The sages taught an incident involving a youth who was reading the book of Ezekiel in the house of his teacher and was comprehending the electrum. The phrase in the Hebrew, mevin bechashmal, would translate today as understands electricity. How is this possible? This text comes to us, that is, Tractate Chagiga, probably sometime in the 5th century CE. But then again, electrical phenomena have been studied since antiquity. Thales of Miletus recorded observations about static electricity in the 7th century BCE. Pliny the Elder and Scribonius Largus, that's a great name, Scribonius Largus, both writing in the first century CE, described how electric shocks could travel along conducting objects. After the discovery of the Baghdad battery in 1936, some scholars went as far as to say that the Parthians had knowledge of electroplating, all of which is to say that it's not completely anachronistic for the sages of the Talmud to be discussing electrical phenomena. Chagiga continues with the youth, who read the book of Ezekiel, quote, He was comprehending the electrum, and fire came out of the electrum and burned him, and they sought to suppress the book of Ezekiel. Kind of like Tipper Gore, you know, when she wanted to suppress songs like Prince's Darling Nikki and Cindy Lauper's She Bop in 1985, and we all know how that turned out. Chagiga continues, Quote, Hananiah ben Chizkiah said to them, If this youth happened to be wise, are all people wise enough to understand this book? Meaning, this youth is particularly precocious and figured out stuff that no one else could, so we're good, I guess. The Gemara continues, quote, What is the electrum? Rav Yehuda says, Speaking animals of fire, it was taught that at times they are silent, at times they speak. When the divine speech emerges from the mouth of the Holy One, blessed be he, they are silent. And when the divine speech does not emerge from the mouth of the Holy One, blessed be he, they speak. All of this is to say that we're in store for some crazy-ass stuff in the book of Ezekiel. Get ready. 
The book of Ezekiel falls into three neat sections. The first section is chapters 1 through 24, in which Yehezkel unleashes a stinging rebuke of the people's bad behavior. It comes from the fifth year of Jehoiachin's exile, roughly 593 BCE, up until the destruction of the temple at the hands of the Babylonians in 586 BCE. The second section, chapters 25 through 32, deals with prophecies about other nations, which Yehezkel delivers to them directly. Section 3, chapters 33 through 48, are prophecies of consolation. One other thing that stands out from this book is its strict chronology. Parts 1 and 3 track consistently, which leads scholars to conclude that this book had one author, perhaps Yehezkel himself. The use of the first person is also a strong indicator. So let's jump in with arguably the most compelling opener to a book in the prophets so far. Verse 1, quote, In the thirtieth year, on the fifth day of the fourth month, when I was in the community of exiles by the Chebar Canal, the heavens opened, and I saw visions of God. Now, who is this I? Verse 3 identifies him as, quote, the priest Ezekiel, son of Buzi. Now, this is not insignificant, because if you recall, Yirmiyahu was also from a line of Kohanim, of priests. But the big difference here is that Yehezkel was a practicing Kohen, He served in the temple and performed the rituals and was taken into exile in the first wave after Jehoiachin's failed revolt against the Babylonians in 597 BCE. For Yehezkel, the priestly worldview is not an abstraction. It is his upbringing, his education, his training, and his profession. So much so that it's hard to separate Yehezkel's priestly preoccupations from his concerns as a prophet. It comes across in his style of writing, where he borrows phrases and concepts from the Holiness Code in Leviticus 17 through 26, such as, I am God, or because I am holy, or, and you will know that I am God. We'll get more into the specifics when we encounter them in the course of this book. He also rails incessantly against idolatry. He uses the term gilulim, to decry idol worship some 39 times, and he criticizes sinning behaviors that will bring about destruction, like not keeping Shabbat and ritual impurities. But what's also interesting in what he doesn't say, Yeshayahu and Yirmiyahu both invade against people who near offered but kept sinning. God, they said, doesn't want your near offerings under these circumstances. It's kind of hypocritical. Yechezkel never knocks near offering, as that's his profession and his profession's raison d'etre. Okay, okay, let's get back into the text. Starting in verse 4, Yechezkel describes what he sees on the banks of the Chebar Canal, what the sages later on would call Ma'asem Merkava, or chariot mysticism. You'll excuse the lengthy quote, but up to this point in the Tanakh, there hasn't been anything we've discussed in Tanakhcast that has been as cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs as what you're about to hear. Quote, I looked and lo, A stormy wind came sweeping out of the north, a huge cloud and flashing fire surrounded by a radiance, and in the center of it, in the center of the fire, a gleam as of amber. In the center of it were also the figures of four creatures, and this was their appearance. They had the figures of human beings, however each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. The legs of each were fused into a single rigid leg, and the feet of each were like a single calf's hoof and their sparkle was like the luster of burnished bronze. They had human hands below their wings. The four of them had their faces and their wings on their four sides. Each one's wings touched those of the other. They did not turn when they moved. They could move in the direction of any of its faces. Each of them had a human face at the front, 
Each of the four had a face of a lion on the right. Each of the four had a face of an ox on the left. And each of the four had the face of an eagle at the back. Such were their faces. As for their wings, they were separated. Above, each had two touching those of the others, while the other two covered its body. And each could move in the direction of any of its faces. They went wherever the spirit impelled them to go, without turning when they moved. Such then was the appearance of the creatures. With them was something that looked like burning coals of fire. This fire, suggestive of torches, kept moving about among the creatures. The fire had a radiance and lightning issued from the fire. Dashing to and fro among the creatures was something that looked like flares. As I gazed on the creatures, I saw one wheel on the ground next to each of the four-faced creatures. As to the appearances and structure of the wheels, they gleamed like barrel. All four had the same form. The appearance and structure of each was as of two wheels cutting through each other. And when they moved, each could move in the direction of any of its four quarters. They did not veer when they moved. Their rims were tall and frightening, for the rims of all four were covered all over with eyes. And when the creatures moved forward, the wheels moved at their sides. And when the creatures moved, were born above the earth, the wheels were born too. Wherever the spirit impelled them to go, they went. Wherever the spirit impelled them, and the wheels were born alongside them, for the spirit of the creatures was in the wheels. When those moved, these moved. And when those stood still, these stood still. And when those were born above the earth, the wheels were born alongside them, for the spirit of the creatures was in the wheels. Above the heads of the creatures was a form, an expanse, with an awe-inspiring gleam as of crystal, was spread out above their heads. Under the expanse, each had one pair of wings extended toward those of the others, and each had another pair covering its body. When they moved, I could hear the sound of their wings, like the sound of mighty waters, like the sound of Shaddai, a tumult like the din of an army. When they stood still, they would let their wings droop. From above the expanse over their heads came a sound. When they stood still, they would let their wings droop. Above the expanse over their heads was the semblance of a throne, in appearance like sapphire. And on top, upon this semblance of a throne, there was the semblance of a human form. From what appeared as his loins up, I saw a gleam as of amber, what looked like a fire encased in a frame. And from what appeared as his loins down, I saw what looked like fire. There was a radiance all about him. Like the appearance of the bow which shines in the clouds in a day of rain, such was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. That was the appearance of the semblance of the presence of the Lord. When I beheld it, I flung myself down on my face as I heard the voice of someone speaking. And this voice, despite the amazing setup, delivers the usual message that God delivers to prophets. In other words, go and tell the Jews to behave, except in the spirit of the amazing imagery of chapter 1, a hand stretches out toward Yechezkel, and in the hand is a scroll, and God unrolls it before him, and it's covered with lamentations, dirges, and woes, and then God says, But don't worry, as bitter as the words are, it tastes like honey. And don't worry some more, because even though the Jews are stubborn, God tells Yechezkel, quote, I will make your face as hard as theirs, and your forehead as brazen as theirs. I will make your forehead like an adamant, harder than flint. Do not fear them and do not be dismayed by them, though they are a rebellious breed. So Yechezkel finds himself swept away to the expat community in Tel Aviv, where he sits stunned for seven days. And when he comes out of it, God speaks to him again, warning him that he must do a good job warning the Jews, because if they aren't warned properly and they sin, then Yechezkel is on the hook. But if he tells the people to repent and they don't, well, then it's on them. 
But before Yechezkel can head out to do his proper warning, God tells him that he will be shut into his house and tied up with cords and paralyzed so he can't speak. Kind of like a, you know, BDSM version of the waiting room. Until God gives him the green light to head out and get to work. But even then, God is not optimistic. Quote, He who listens will listen, and he who does not will not. For they are a rebellious breed. And on that cheery note, here endeth the lesson. I have to confess that uh, I've encountered this section of Ezekiel before in the context of a childhood uh, obsession, this TV show called Project UFO. It was on TV from 1978. I think it lasted maybe two seasons. And as its title indicates, it's about UFOs. Let's have a listen to the opening. saw the wheel. This is the wheel he said he saw. These are unidentified flying objects that people say they are seeing now. Are they proof that we are being visited by civilizations from other stars? Or just what are they? The United States Air Force began an investigation of this high strangeness in a search for the truth. What you are about to see is part of that 20-year search. This show made such an impression on me as an eight-year-old because even though I studied Torah in school and I vaguely knew who Yechezkel was, I never studied any of the Nevi'im until much later. I'm thinking like maybe middle school. And then it was exclusively, you know, casual references to the ethnic cleansing in the book of Joshua and all the shenanigans and judges. I'm thinking particularly of that scene in Judges chapter 1 with King Adoni Bezek when he says, quote, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. Oh, damn! The books of Samuel got a little bit more attention, but kings, eh, barely. And when you get into the latter prophets, it gets into the greatest hits territory. A chapter or three of Isaiah, maybe some Jeremiah, but Ezekiel is overlooked completely for the Treasar, the book of Twelve, the most famous of which is Jonah, who gets some love because of the whale and the rousing tale of redemption, which we'll talk about sometime in episode 141. But that's it. Everything else just got set aside. Well, that's not true. We did a little bit of Esther at Purim time as well, and maybe a little bit of Ruth in the weeks before Shavuot. But it's unfair really to imply necessarily that there was any malice or grand conspiracy here, you know, that somehow my teachers and rabbis were keeping all the juicy stuff from me because they wanted to keep me ignorant. One has to make choices. There's only so much space on the park bench. Someone has to be left standing. Time is a finite resource, after all, don't you know? Oh, yeah? Yeah. But the kind of choices one makes are not simply made randomly so that you could fit it all in within the allotted time. Life is not Tetris. You pick and choose for a lot of reasons, such as the episode of Friends entitled The One Where Old Yeller Dies, which begins as follows. Hey, what you guys doing? Monica's making us watch Old Yeller. 
So why are you guys so upset? It's Old Yeller. It's a happy movie. What? What are you talking about? Come on. Happy family gets a dog. Frontier fun. Yeah, but Fiends, what about the end? Oh, what, when Yeller saves the family from the wolf and everyone's happy? That's not the end. Yeah, huh? That's when my mother would shut off the TV and say the end. What about the part where he has rabies? He doesn't have rabies, he has babies. That's what my mom said. Uh, Phoebe, I don't think your mom would want you to see what's about to happen. Why, what's about to happen? I've never seen this part before. Hey, Travis, what you doing with that gun? Oh, no. No, no, Travis, put down the gun. No, 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 he's, he's your buddy, he's your yeller, no. No, no, the end, the end. Okay, what kind of a sick doggy snuff film is this? Phoebe then goes on and rents all the movies her mother didn't let her see, like Bambi, which predictably really upsets her because all the movies have sad endings. Now, Phoebe's mom didn't make these edits because she was short on time. She did it because she wanted to shield her child from the more unpleasant aspects of Hollywood cinema and arguably life. Though Friends plays this for laughs, especially since Phoebe's mom eventually kills herself, which is also played for laughs, not the suicide, just how and when Phoebe brings it up. Can you blame Phoebe's mom? I mean, was she wrong to omit all the sad bits? Parents make all kinds of decisions about their kids, what to expose them to intentionally, what to shield them from, and what to pretend to ignore when they get into it despite all your best efforts. I'm looking at you, Reddit. But I don't know why my rabbis skipped over Ezekiel chapter 1. Maybe they didn't want to contend with the very obvious associations that come with reading about Yechezkel's visions. Either the man was visited by a UFO, or he was noshing on some electric lettuce. You should be coming on pretty soon, dude. How much do you smoke? This will be a little demonstration of that. Listen, listen up. That was my skull. I'm so wasted. And as a teacher, I gotta admit that conversation can be a bit awkward. And since all the conjecture about space aliens or shrooms doesn't lead to a productive conversation about God, Torah, and Israel, I could see why my rabbis decided... Hard no. But then you get into other areas, ones that are equally awkward, but might potentially lead to a different kind of conversation about God, Torah, and Israel. Like, say, the story of Dina in the book of Genesis, chapter 34. She is the lone daughter of Yaakov who, quote, went out to visit the daughters of the land and has this encounter which the text tells us is rape, although Dina herself never speaks at any point in the story to confirm or deny it. And this is not to say that I don't believe women when they accuse men of rape. I do, but I also know that men will use the charge of rape of their women to attack other men. Countless lynchings in the American South were justified on the grounds that black men looked at white women inappropriately. Emmett Till is but one example. So I'm justifiably wary when men speak for women about sexual violence. But we never had this conversation about sexual violence in the Torah because it's awkward, especially when it's men doing all the talking. And it's a really bad look for Shimon and Levi, her brothers, and Yaakov, her father. And it's an even worse look when you get into the fan fiction writers of the Midrash who lay the blame for what happened to Dina squarely on Dina for having the audacity to step outside of her home and go out in public. 
There are other awkward bits, like the stories in Genesis 6 about fallen ones having sex with human women and siring a race of heroes and giants. The almost reflexive response to that one is... Hard no. Then again, you could probably expect anything to do with sex being omitted. Rabbis don't like talking about that kind of stuff unless they're telling you to keep it in your pants until marriage, in which case... Hard no. ...takes on a whole different meaning. But again, I can understand that choice, that sin of omission for middle and high schoolers, because sexuality is an awkward topic, even though by omitting it, you kind of perpetuate the patriarchy's messaging around it, which keeps it male-centered and male-serving. But that's a topic for another time. Omission is a choice. It is a failure to do something one can and ought to do. Jewish tradition has a concept similar to what Catholics call a sin of omission. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, when the Torah commands, quote, If you see your fellow's ox or sheep gone astray, do not ignore it. You must take it back to your fellow. This is the second iteration of the imperative, which appears earlier in Exodus 23. Thomas Aquinas regards the sin of omission, refraining from doing the good, as sin adjacent to the sin of commission, that is, doing the evil. He wrote about this in Summa Theologica, and for him, omission is less serious or less grievous than commission. His argument is based on the opposite. If you think about refraining from evil and doing good as degrees of virtue, clearly doing good is better than refraining from evil, so too with sin of omission and sin of commission. There are degrees of sinning, where refraining from, say, telling the truth is better than outright lying, but not by much, especially if you're the one being lied to. And I don't think that my reading of Deuteronomy sets up a similar scale. A man who blithely watches his neighbor's ox or sheep wander off is liable, period. Nevertheless, Talmudic sages do qualify this imperative by saying later on that in some limited circumstances you are allowed to cast a blind eye. The Torah is supposed to be our guiding light, the perfect guide to moral and ethical behavior. The commentators are there to make the light even brighter and shinier. The Torah is not supposed to message badly about anything, or by extension, the Tanakh. And contrary to the next volume on the Jewish bookshelf, which is the Mishnah, the Torah speaks in one clear, coherent voice. Or at least it's supposed to. It came to us from God directly, don't you know? Oh, yeah? Yeah. So by omitting all the awkward bits, you aren't just sparing yourself an awkward conversation, you're intentionally reinforcing that ideological position. And in the process, you misrepresent the very thing you're venerating and protecting, the Torah, which is a complicated, problematic text. And you also open up the possibility that someone who drank the Kool-Aid on the Torahs and by the extension the Tanakh and by the extension Judaism's univocal, monolithic voice, you might discover to your shock and horror that a simple read-through of the document reveals that it does not speak with one voice, that the Torah, in addition to presenting a vision of a just society that protects the vulnerable, for example, also has some terrible things to say about women, gays and lesbians, and non-Jews. And like Phoebe, who discovers that Bambi's mom dies, all you're really doing by omitting the awkward or sad bits is setting up the audience for inevitable disillusionment and sadness. We can square this supposed circle if only we have the opportunity to confront the text directly and read for ourselves what the Torah has to say or the Tanakh or the Mishnah or the Talmud and confront the awkward bits that rabbis instinctually want to omit because they're awkward and ask awkward questions and, most awkward of all, hold folks accountable. This is one of the primary reasons why I launched this podcast in 2013. I, me, personally, I wanted to have a direct encounter with the book 
being a person of the book. I wanted to read and confront every chapter of every book without omissions. But I also wanted to provide an opportunity for all y'all to take 18 minutes or less and have a direct encounter with me. And perhaps the next time someone tells you the Torah says, or the Tanakh says, or Judaism says, you can listen respectfully, and maybe you might respond with, You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. I hope Tanakhcast has been as enlightening for you as it has been and is for me. We're almost at the halfway point, and the hits just keep on coming. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about Tanakhcast. Send a friend an email to say, Hey, would it kill you to check out Tanakhcast? Or even better, write a brief review at Apple Podcasts. Google Play, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people who might be interested in some Bible learning find this podcast. Or if you want to help in a bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that, and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 121, when we continue in the book of Ezekiel, with chapters 4 through 7.